So today we are beginning our series in the book of Ruth. It has sweeping themes that I think are very relevant for us here today. So there's hardship and suffering. There's death and new life. There's bitterness, not trusting the Lord, but also faith and hope and trusting God in his provinces, providence. And ultimately, there is a message of redemption, of a redeemer who cares for us and comes to us in his grace and mercy. I don't know about you, but those themes seem very relevant for today in the here and now. So for the next several weeks, we are going to be edified in the book of Ruth, of building up our own faith and our trust in the Lord. So today, the main title, if I was going, well, I did give it a title. The title is Trusting God in All Circumstances. And our main points that we are going to learn from are hardship, suffering, God's provision, and God's grace. So let us go directly into the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went in the country of Moab and remained there. Okay, so this is kind of the opening, right? It's the prologue. And there is a lot of information, a lot of good context here in the prologue. See, the tendency is we want to just skip over this stuff and get to the good stuff. But unless you understand what this is saying here, the rest of it lacks that depth and meaning. So, it says it was written during the book of Judges. Now, the book of the, the time of the Judges was about 1210 to 1051 BC. We can get those dates pretty well there. So it was a particular time frame. And Ruth was written during that time frame, which is why in your Bible, it says Joshua judges Ruth. It always seems like, why is Ruth there? Well, because it was written during that time period. Now, what was the culture of the time in the book of Judges? What was the culture was, was like? Well, it was an ever downward spiral. See, the people kept wanting to have somebody to be a ruler, almost to be a savior. Remember what Pastor Steve talked about, how people are searching out during this election year to get a savior for our nation, but there's only one king, right? But the people would get a new judge, and for a while it would be okay, but then people would forget about God, and it would go in a downward spiral. And it became more and more and more until finally at the very end 
of the book of Judges, it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the time frame in which Ruth was written and ultimately a downward spiral in which everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So here's a question for you. What happens during times when people looked to themselves and not to God? Well, at the very least, people start making poor choices, even sinful choices. And God will not bless those sinful choices. In fact, there is often hardship and suffering that occurs when people reject God and his will. Look, that was during the time of Judges, and I don't know about you, but it looks very relevant for our day in here and now, where people are rejecting God more and more and more. And we see what's happening in our nation because of that. So when people live in unbelief, disobedience, God will discipline. And both the godly and ungodly can suffer from his discipline or hardship. Well, what was happening in here in the book of Ruth? There was a famine in the land, right? Now, famines in the Old Testament occurred fairly frequently. And not always, but many times, it was seen as a way of God disciplining people, of calling them back to him. So we've got this man, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi. And they're in the land of Judah, of Bethlehem, which ironically, by the way, means house of bread, right? You would think there would be food, but there was a famine, even in Bethlehem, the house of bread. So they were facing hardships. Uh, they needed a place where they could find work, where they could get food. So they leave God's land, they leave Bethlehem, and they go to the land of Moab. You know, so on, on the surface, right, this seems pretty reasonable. If you can't feed your family, if you can't find work, if you can't do things like that, you maybe sometimes move. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But the sense is, the sense that I get from the text is that Elimelech didn't go just because they needed the food and the work. The sense is that he left because there wasn't a trust that God would provide. See, if you, if you are not trusting that God will provide and you just go off on your own plan, plans, well, that's the same as the book of Judges, isn't it? So I think that's the sense. And there are a lot of people who have this mindset this very day. God isn't providing, so I had better do it myself. I actually don't trust God enough to provide for what I need, so I just better do it myself. And we actually covered that two weeks ago in the very last sermons on the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now that 
Those words are easy to read, aren't they? We can understand them pretty easily. But to actually believe them, to actually trust God in everything that God will provide, that's a lot harder to do, isn't it? And this is the perpetual human struggle that you and I and people have, not fully trusting God. Look, it actually started in the garden with Adam and Eve, but Abraham didn't fully trust God. Moses didn't fully trust God, which is why he never crossed into the promised land. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Now, again, is it unwise to look for a job to feed your family? No, those are good things to do, right? But not apart from God, with God, trusting that God will provide in all circumstances. So they went to the country of Moab. So what's the big deal about going to Moab? Well, if you take a look in your Bible, in Numbers, I believe it starts with chapter 22, the uh, Israelites were afraid, I'm sorry, the Moabites were afraid of the Israelites, that they would overtake the country. So the king asked for a curse to be put upon the Israelites. So that's one thing. So there's already a curse. But as you can see, there's also immorality. So the Israelites started to have sexual relations back and forth with the Moabites, certainly outside of God's will, God's command. And then they also started to intermarry. We might not think that's a big deal, but did you know that the Moabites had a different God, a false God, and there was idol worship? And so once you start to marry in a family, well, then this false idol worship goes hand in hand. So let me give you this little prologue in a nutshell. In short, there was an Israelite family, part of God's chosen people, who because of hardships, abandoned and left God's land and went into a foreign country where they worshiped false gods. That's in a nutshell what we have in the prologue. So there's definitely a hardship that occurs, but now there's also suffering. So let's go on with our text here. Verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of one was Opah, and the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husbands. Now again, going to Moab seemed like a pretty good idea in the beginning, but then there's suffering. There's death. Both the husband and the two sons die, leaving widows all the way around without the ability to provide for themselves. So is there grief? Yeah. And grief is an expression of suffering, isn't it? And there was also suffering that led to death. Now, in our culture, we don't like to talk about suffering very much. We like to avoid that topic. 
but I want to spend a little time, just a little bit, on this topic of suffering. See, there are a lot of people, non-believers and believers, who spend all of their lives trying to avoid any and all suffering. Now, I'm not saying we should go after suffering by any means, so don't hear that, right? But there are a lot of people who would try to avoid any and all suffering in their life whatsoever. But when suffering does happen, when death does happen, many people see suffering and death as a penalty from God, as a punishment from God. You see, what do prosperity preachers preach? They say, God just wants you to be happy, to have everything in your life taken care of. And by the way, if you do suffer, that's a sign of your unbelief. And if you want to know the truth, there is no gospel in prosperity preaching. But people flock to it because it focuses just on the good things of life and discounts suffering at all. But what happens when you have that? When our theology says that God would never allow anyone to suffer, you have a very dangerous and mis, a misguided and dangerous theology. See, it's a theology that says we don't live in a fallen world, that denies that we live in a sinful, fallen world. It is a theology that unwittingly diminishes God and exalts the self. And it is a theology that ultimately has no room for the cross. For what happened on the cross? Christ died for us. He suffered greatly on the cross because of our sin, which leads to suffering. This is Christ Jesus who suffered for us. See, if you say that God would never really want any suffering in your life whatsoever, you don't understand the cross. You don't understand then why Jesus came. See, out of that suffering, out of his suffering on the cross, a door was opened that gave us such great grace and mercy and reconciliation because God used everything according to his purpose. And you know what? God will often use suffering and a crisis to bring people back to him. Just this week, I had a conversation with a young man who by his own admission uh, for most of his life, and he's not a, you know, he's a young man, but he had been a very reluctant churchgoer at best. But last year, his two best friends, strong Christian friends, were killed in a car accident. They were not old by any means. They were very young. They were very young. And it was devastating. Unexpected, it was a tragic event. 
And in the midst of this crisis, this tragic event, this young man that I know really heard and felt God calling him strongly. And when I talked to him, there was a faith, a passion for God that had never been there before. As a matter of fact, he wants now to go into ministry and is registering to go to Bible college. I mean, this is something very, very different. Would we ever wish that tragedy to occur with his friends? No. And yet, in the midst of suffering, God calls out to us, sometimes grabs us by our very soul and shakes us awake. Look, there are countless stories like this throughout history, throughout our lives. You may even have had it yourself or you know friends that have had it. They've gone through a crisis and God has shaken them awake through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and says, look to the cross. Look to Christ Jesus and what he did for you. Out of his suffering, you may have life and life eternal. Look, you and I, when we stare at the cross each time, it should shake us to some degree. It should bring us to ever greater faith. It should awaken us to the presence, the plan, the provision, the grace, the mercy of God for us in Christ Jesus. So that there was suffering, but now it seemed to shake them awake a, a bit. You see, the women, widows, and that culture really didn't have a way to provide for themselves. So they went back because Naomi, or they started back because Naomi had heard that God was providing for his people. So let's continue on in our reading. I'm going to actually read six through nine. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For as she had heard in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So that they, Naomi had set her eyes on Judah, right? Of going back ultimately to Bethlehem, the house of bread, because she had heard that the Lord was providing. And you and I again and again have to be reminded that the Lord does provide. You know, that reading from Matthew that we've done, Matthew chapter 6, has come into play several times throughout our uh, past month, I think. And it seems to again fit here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. 
They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, are you not of more value than they? And then going with verse 31 through 32, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Again, God's providing, right? And he knows our every need. Do we trust in him? I mean, the situation with Naomi, right? It's a very heart-wrenching scene. I mean, you can't help but read this, especially if you're a mother with, although she said they're daughters-in-law, she really does call them her daughters. And it's just heart-wrenching. And they say they have a better chance. She tells them, you have a better chance of finding husbands and being taken care of. But then she blesses them, doesn't she? And it's really interesting the way she blesses them. Even though they're not Jewish, she uses God's holy name. It says the Lord in your Bible, but it would actually read YHWH, which we know is Yahweh. And that's God's covenantal name, the one in which he gave for his promises for his people. And then this word, she asked the Lord to be kind, but this kindness has a depth of meaning to it, this word. It can mean steadfast love, mercy, favor, loyalty, goodness, kindness. So she is truly blessing her daughters in a way that's very different. And there's a depth to it. Now, what's interesting here, you would think if she had enough faith in the Lord, right? If she had enough faith in the Lord, wouldn't she then say, come back to me and make sure you come back to Bethlehem? But she doesn't, does she? I mean, rather than staying here and worshiping false gods, she just gives a blessing. And I think what you can learn from this is that Naomi trusted in the Lord's provision for food, but not really fully trusting in God himself. There's still a lot of doubt and disbelief. You know, in our next section, we're actually going to find out that uh, she believes that the Lord is against her. Now, you and I, and I bet you know people who they see that there's a Christian who's praying and there are some blessings in that Christian's life. So that person, maybe they're just a casual believer, they say, well, I should pray too, because then the Lord will bless me. Well, is that actually trusting in the Lord? No, that's just saying, well, if I do this, then God might bless me. And this is a journey that a lot of Christians have to go through, I myself included. 
where we kind of go, yeah, I'll believe in Jesus. I'll do the whole Christian thing because I think I'm going to have a better life that way. But that's still not actually trusting God. What is that? That's still trusting our will, not the Lord's will. See, maybe you and I should be like our Savior who was in the garden on the night in which he was to be betrayed. He prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So here's a question for you. Is that your prayer? Are you trusting in God's grace? Because God has abundant grace. So let's continue on with our reading. This is uh, just, you have verse 10 and 11. I'm going to read through 13. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, the daughters are moved by Naomi's heartfelt plea, right? And her need, and they love her, and so they're going to go back. But Naomi uses this big hyperbole, big hyperbole to really say, why would you ever go with me? Look, you're not going to get husbands from me. I don't, I'm not pregnant. Uh, even if I got a husband this night and got pregnant with twins, would you wait around? I mean, how old would you be till they were grown old enough to be married? Now, this hyperbole is actually based on one of God's commandments in that if a husband died, the brother of that husband should marry his wife so that she may be taken care of and so that the lineage is carried forth. So there's some actually some base, uh, some foundation for her hyperbole. But I really want to get to this point here. She says, no, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she's really not even trusting in the Lord's providence, the Lord's grace, she's actually bitter, a hardness of heart against God. She believes that God is against her. See, my guess is that you personally know of people who have had a crisis in their life, suffering, hardship, even death, and they say, God must hate me. God does not love me. How could a loving God do something like this? So in their mind, they would say something like this. God is good some of the time, and some of the time he isn't. That's what a lot of people have in their minds. But what do we say almost every Sunday, right? Right? 
Say it with me. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Now look, a lot of people might say, well, that's a nice little thing that you do at your church, right? But isn't it kind of trite? Isn't it kind of just too easy here? And the answer is no, because it reinforces who God is. It's actually a profound theological statement. And when you trust that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, it keeps your heart from hardness and from bitterness. It keeps your heart trusting the Lord in all circumstances. So let's continue going here. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And op, op, you see, I, I have trouble with her name each time, right? Because we want to say another name, but I'm not going to say that name. Orpah, Orpah, I'll get it right, kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said to her, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. I mean, this is, again, quite a heart-wrenching scene here in the book of Ruth. They're to be separated. Now, one daughter-in-law does go, and there's actually not much comment about her going back to her country and to her gods. But Ruth stays, doesn't she? Naomi tries to persuade her, but I want you to listen very carefully to what Naomi says. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. This is actually a really sad statement on the state of affairs for Naomi. Let me paraphrase it for you so you might get a better idea. Orpah has returned to Moab and false god worship. Ruth, you do the same. You go back and worship false gods. That paraphrase brings it a little bit more to life, right? The implication of what's going on here. You see, if there's a heart that's bitter towards God, well, then any God will do, right? Any belief will do. Doesn't matter that it's false belief, as long as you got a belief, we'll just believe in whatever. And this is actually a very quite sad statement. It shows in many ways that Naomi has given up. But what's Ruth's reaction to all of this? I mean, it's really quite different, isn't it? Now, Ruth had gone through the same hardships that Naomi had. Her father-in-law had died, then her husband had died. She's left widowed with a widowed mother. You know, if Yahweh, if the Lord does this to people, why would anybody want to worship him? 
I mean, you can see all of this coming through. But the love she has for Naomi and God's intervention does something different. See, there is a confession of faith that occurs. And she says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. This is an astounding statement, confession of faith. Remember, the Moabites did false idol worship. Also, they accepted human sacrifices. They encouraged immorality. I mean, all the circumstances were going against Ruth, but God. Love that phrase, don't you? But God intervened. And it was all due to grace. You see, we find that grace is available to everyone. It was available to the Israelites. It was also available to the Moabites. See, there's a lot of people, probably people that you know, maybe even you, who think that you are outside of God's grace. There have been acts of immorality. There has certainly been false idol worship. You have done things that you know were wrong when you were doing them. But God. God continually gathers his people to him from all places throughout the earth. And no one is outside of his grace including Ruth, the Moabite, including Naomi, the Israelite who has a bitter heart towards God. No one is outside God's grace. We are all great sinners, but we have a greater God who gives a greater grace to all who come to him. I don't know about you, but this was a very full just first part of the chapter of Ruth. There's a lot in there, and it, I, it just resonates for me during this day. So a couple questions for you, as I always do. How do you view hardship and suffering? How, and going along with that, how does your view influence what you believe about God? To what degree do you trust God's provisions? Can you say God is good all the time and all the time God is good and stand fast in that? And do you believe that you or others are outside of God's grace? And if so, I would encourage you to look to Jesus and the cross. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. 